This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. Today, we're speaking to Mike Madden, Chair of the ACC Global Board of Directors and General Counsel at Future Feed. Mike started his career in private practice before eventually transitioning into in-house roles. Early on in his life, he had an interesting crossroads where he had to choose between a career in the law and being a rugby union coach. In this episode, we talk about the lessons he learnt from rugby. We also discuss the work Mike has done in fostering greater diversity on the ACC Global Board. And Mike shares his thoughts on how the role of the General Counsel has evolved and the importance of GCs having a seat at the table with senior leadership. This interview was conducted by In-House Insiders producer Adam Jaffrey. Let's dive in. So Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off at the beginning of your career and, and get a bit of the background story. How did things get started out? When I first went to university, I had grand plans of being a HR manager and, and those sorts of things and maybe dabbling a bit of marketing. So that's what I did first up. When I finished university with my business degree, I started working at a company called Hills. And in my rotation through the HR department, I got involved in a number of industrial matters, which required us to obviously go to the Industrial Relations Commission and by default be involved with lawyers and law firms who were acting on our behalf. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the work. And so that was really the thing that encouraged me to go back to law school. So I made the decision to go back to, to law school in 2000 and started my degree at Griffith University in 2001. So that was the start of how I got into law in the first place. Yeah. Now, let me just jump in there really quickly. So you'd done an undergraduate degree already. Then you went and started a job, got involved in a couple of legal related projects and decided, oh, you know, the law might be interesting to me. So you went back to study and did a law degree then. That's correct. So I think it was not necessarily the adversarial aspect of being in a courtroom and arguing out the point. It was actually a lot of the work in the back rooms in terms of the finding a solution and working towards a solution for the business. But that was fascinating for me, that the various scenarios and leveraging that experience and using laws as the framework in which you needed to come up with a solution to ensure you navigated the, the challenge at the time. I went back to university. I was fortunate enough in that I actually did my articles of clerkship at the same time while I was studying full-time. So I basically worked full-time during the day and then literally just went to lectures after hours if the lectures were on after hours. Not too many of them were. And then just tutorials or if neither of those worked, I'd literally just show up to hand in assignments and sit exams. But that was my life at university. And I have to tell you, this is funny story. So on one of my subjects, I think it was uh, law and ethics. I remember showing up to the final exam. There were about 300 people lining up to go into this exam room. So I waited and they called the different subjects in until there were about five people left. And then with the last five people, they called us in and the lecturer for that particular course or topic came up and said, you must be Mike Madden. I said, that wouldn't have been a hard guess. He said, yeah, you're the only person who didn't show up to any lectures or any tutorials uh, this last term. This was my final exam. Anyway, so I started the exam. I did get a distinction mark for it. Someone must have done something right. But that really, for me, highlighted the struggle to study full-time and, and do articles full-time as well. I think it was a good experience because I was getting the practical experience alongside the academic side of it. And I guess in another sort of funny twist, I actually was admitted as a lawyer before in Queensland before I actually had my graduation certificate. So the university had to write a um, 
basically give me a letter to say that I've completed all the requirements and that I haven't been issued with my um, degree as yet, but I've otherwise fulfilled all the requirements. So I got admitted in January of 2005, and I actually got my graduation certificate in June of 2005. So I kind of was ahead of a lot of my friends at that point. Yeah, wow. Did that letter say, we certify Mike Madden, who attended zero lectures throughout the semester, (laughs) is uh, authorized (laughs) to become a lawyer? (laughs) It, it, It probably should have. Some of the people listening to this, you're probably thinking, what the hell is an articles program? So back in the old days, to become a lawyer, you started out and you did five years as a clerk a law clerk in a law firm, and then you graduated to effectively, you were qualified then enough to uh, be admitted as a lawyer, which is why you had a, the the tradition goes that you have a lawyer or a barrister who moves your admission. In the course of time, I guess that that was reduced down to, you did your law degree, and then you did the three years of articles on top of the law degree before you were admitted. And then I think I was actually one of the last groups of people who went through the articles program, because I think shortly after that, the program became a college of law, where you basically went to the college of law after finishing your degree. You did a practical component as part of that, and then you were admitted as a lawyer. So I guess in that generation, that <laughs> still the two years, my father-in-law was a lawyer, actually did the five years of articles. So he never had a formal law degree. But, you know, that interesting take on the profession when you look at that. Well, I was going to say you're a sucker for punishment, right? You went out and got your undergraduate degree, you went and worked, and then decided to go back to study. And then you were doing, you know, your clerkship at the same time and not attending lectures, but still graduated with flying colors. So congratulations on that. So take me through like the next steps then, because I understand you didn't land in-house straight away. No, and even to practice in-house wasn't even really on the radar at the time because it really wasn't recognized as an area and a profession that you could move into. I mean, to be honest, my corporate law lecturer, he actually made running jokes about the fact that the only reason why lawyers move in-house is because they can't get insurance to practice (laughs) in a law firm. And so, you know, that was the, I mean, (laughs) being an in-house lawyer was almost looked down on in the sense that you weren't as capable as a private practice lawyer. So I followed the traditional path of working for a law firm and actually working for a couple of firms at that point. And it was really, I think, when I was at Dibs Barker, I was very fortunate in that I had some very good mentors and partners who I worked for. And I'm sure he won't mind if I name Scott Guthrie, who's now at uh, Thompson Gear. I think he recognized the fact that a career as an in-house lawyer might be something that would be more enjoyable for me, even though I probably didn't realize that at the time. And so uh, he and another gentleman, Jim Holding, who was the former managing partner at uh, DLA Piper in Australia, they asked me whether I'd be interested in a, in a secondment, short-term into Telstra, around 2008. At the time, I'm like, oh, no, well, why would I want to do this? And they said, you know, we think you'd love it, and we want to get on the Telstra panel, and we think you'd be a good representative of the firm Dibs Barker at the time. And so, look, I took that opportunity. I thought, okay, well, it's three months. You know, what could be the worst thing that happens? And, in fact, it turned out to be the best thing that happened because I went in, I was part of the commercial team, in at Telstra in the enterprise and government division. So I worked as a quasi-contract manager and commercial manager, and I was applying a lot of my legal skills in those transactions on the day-to-day work. And so really that for me was almost a bit of a homecoming because I really enjoyed the work and I thought, this is fantastic. I'm involved in the integral business decisions and strategy on some of these things. And so that really fueled the fire to say, I'm really going to work in-house and I don't think I want to go back. That's an awesome story. You mentioned mentors there, Mike. Why do you think having good mentors is important in a career like yours? There are always other people who have been there. And I guess I wanted to be a good lawyer, but I also wanted to be a good human being. And lawyers and good human beings don't necessarily always go hand in hand when you're talking to people, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to. But Yeah, it depends who you ask. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, look, I did like obviously uh, Scott Guthrie and Jim Holding, who was a bit of a mentor later on as well. And I tell a gentleman by the name of Peter Robb. I mean, what these gentlemen brought to the fore for me outside of my technical skills, was just how to be a good human being and how to conduct yourself, how to actually plan out your career somewhat. Because again, a lot of people don't really pay a lot of attention 
to what they want to do in their career. And I, and I guess I was determined to be a, a successful law firm partner. But as soon as I had that taste of in-house, you know, I thought, actually, you know what, this appeals to me more than that life. So I was just lucky that I had, you know, again, good mentors to really talk that through a safe space where you could bounce those ideas off people and sort of get a sense of, okay, is this the right thing to do? Not the right thing to do? Good for me, not good for me. I think the importance for me was I just had someone to talk to and bounce things off. And people who had been in my shoes, had traveled that journey, were able to share their own experiences. And that gave me the sort of grounding and the context to be able to make decisions about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And even to this day, I mean, I don't necessarily have a direct mentor now, but there's a number of people I look up to and I keep in touch with. It would be remiss of me not to mention another mentor that I had when I was going through the articles. And there were two gentlemen, uh, Bede King and Bob Latif. You know, they were also very instrumental in, I guess, the early foundations of me being a lawyer. And I have to say, I'm not a black letter lawyer. I, I came out, I call it street smart, more commercial, more focused on the what's the solution rather than what are the impediments. So that, that just gives you an example from my perspective as to how mentors have been important for me. And I'll talk a little bit about mentors that I've had subsequently. So in my roles at FTR and Hine, you know, I worked for a CFO, Sue Whitbourne, who was an amazing person, very knowledgeable. But again, I found not only was she a good boss to work for, she was also a very good mentor. And I learned a lot from her. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to work with her for about six years, seven years. Yeah, awesome. I think good mentors are very important to careers. Switching is a little bit here, Mike, we've talked a little bit about your professional career, but I want to talk a little bit about things outside of work. And I understand you're a big rugby union fan. And you've said in the past that if you weren't a lawyer, you'd be a rugby union coach. It's a very specific role. Tell me a little <laughs> bit more about that. I didn't go through the private school system. So, you know, rugby back in the mid-90s was a very elite school sport. I went up to a university at USQ in Toowoomba and uh, went up there and, you know, very inclusive culture. And we had people from, you know, the Pacific Islands and so on. And really enjoyed that sort of camaraderie and the teamwork. And, you know, when I came back down to Brisbane, played for Uni of Queensland. I played there for five or six seasons and then had a couple of injuries, which meant no more running around. Next best thing was to start coaching. And of course, I found that with coaching, a lot of the things that you do professionally also apply. And that's where I really learned a lot of my management skills in terms of managing 15 to 20 other people to, to sort of all sing from the same song sheet. But it was just, just really the camaraderie and just being involved with a group of people who were out to have a good time, play a bit of sport, and just enjoy life in general. And uh, so, look, I really enjoyed coaching. I coached at the University of Queensland for about 10 years. I was also involved you know, in the, the committee and various admin positions. I did have an opportunity to coach you know, the Premier Rugby in Brisbane with a former Wallaby for a couple of seasons as well as an assistant coach. And I was doing a lot of the reviewing game tape and designing game plans and so on. It was about this time when my career in-house really started to take off because I moved in as a GC into a company called IC Communications. But as it is with these things in life, when it rains, it pours. So I had a couple of offers to go to Europe and uh, coach professional, well, semi-professional rugby in Italy or Romania in you know the second divisions. And look, it wasn't bad. I mean, if I wasn't that far into my sort of legal career, it would have been very tempting, I have to say. But yeah, the deal was you go there, you're a professional coach for basically six months of the year, they pay you, they put you up, and then the rest of the time you can come home until you're to go back for preseason. So I still think if I won the lottery tomorrow and I didn't have to work, <laughs> work for a living, that's the passion. And I would actually happily go and just volunteer coach somewhere and, and do that. But I think for me, again, I just really enjoy that team environment. I still miss it now. I mean, sometimes I go to the, the UQ Rugby Club on a Saturday with, with my kids now. When I look at the guys, I, I still sort of miss that whole team environment. So I have a bit of sympathy for professional coaches and players who 
they have a long professional career and then they retire. I mean, I didn't retire because I never had a professional career. I just gave it away. But yeah, I can understand why you miss that camaraderie and just being with a group of people and like-minded and, you know, you work hard towards achieving a goal. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, win premierships a couple of times and be very competitive in, in others. So yeah, that's the background to it. And I'd still do it in a heartbeat if I didn't have a legal career. And, and I have to say, I mean, the, the lifespan of a rugby coach is really only one or two seasons. So it's not exactly the best job security in the world. So, you know, but hey, we all have passions and that's one of them for me. Maybe you've spent those two season tickets already. I was going to say, you're talking about going to watch the kids play. You could always pick up the clipboard and help out with the kids team. So, uh, so that's one thing there. You touched on this a bit before, Mike, about how coaching a team sport teaches you good management skills. And I actually wanted to ask you, are there skills and attributes that are transferable really between being a rugby coach and your legal career? Yeah, sure. So absolutely. I think, you know, as a coach, you wear multiple hats. You're a mentor, you're a friend, but you know, you're also the boss in that instance. And so you've got to come up with frameworks basically to communicate, to make sure you've got defined goals, strategies to meet those goals and in effect, get people to work off the same sheet. And that does mean being able to deal with various personalities and characters and, and trying to get the best out of people and influencing, I guess, as well. Because look, during my coaching career, if I can call it that, I did coach a couple of players who were playing professional super rugby. I was fortunate enough, to, obviously, as a reserve grade coach to have a number of them come back through reserve as injury. And those guys are very credible because they're playing at the highest level in terms of professional sport. And so to be able to communicate with them and have them accept that team environment that you're in, probably not at the standard that they're used to. They're used to a much higher standard. So it teaches you, again, how to be able to influence and communicate effectively with people and get your message across in plain English so that it's everyone can understand that. The one thing I will say about rugby, even though it's an elite sport, I mean, at that club, we had a range of cultural backgrounds, some who were non-English speaking. So you had to be able to communicate effectively. And I think first and foremost, for me, that was the thing that really stood out for me and that was really transferable. And then setting goals, just general management skills, time management skills, because, you know, you, you only have so many hours in a day as an amateur coach who isn't getting paid <laughs> and managing that. And, and obviously then the support cast and managing a team of people who are managing the team washing jerseys, cutting up oranges, whatever else that, that's involved and so on. So there's a lot of skills. But I'd say for me, the goal setting, the, the clear communication, the, the influencing skills were probably the things that are easily transferable in that environment. And also being analytical as well, because we did get into why isn't something working? And also culture. So a team culture where people get along and they're actually working for each other as opposed to personal interests. And all of those, I think, resonate with corporate Australia today in terms of the, the ideal culture that you want to have. Yeah, awesome. Couldn't agree more. Now, I wanted to talk a bit about your current role as board chair of the ACC Global Board of Directors. That is a really impressive job title. So I wanted to ask you, what does your job actually entail? Well, I mean, it's in a sense, it can look like a job title, but I think it's a privilege to have the opportunity, I guess, to represent my fellow peers as in a leadership position in a global organization. The board chair of ACC, I mean, you're ultimately the person who guides the board and in turn, the decisions of the ACC around how to best advocate on behalf of our members, how to ensure that resources are relevant and valuable to our members and uh, strategic foundations of the organization are sound and are designed to meet the future needs of in-house lawyers. I think really as a board chair, those are the areas that I found I spent most of my time focusing on. And then to a certain extent, the culture of the board as well. If you look at the ACC Global Board at the moment, I think that it represents very accurately the broad membership base that we have across cultural, geographical backgrounds, as well as the demographics of having people from different walks of life and different beliefs as well. So it's very representative of that. And I'm really proud of that. That, that is a culture of diversity and inclusion that we've purposefully worked towards for a number of years. 
and you know, in terms of the directors that, that serve on the board, including me. I wasn't born in Australia. English is my second language. I'm an Iranian. Parents migrated here in 1988 after a six-year process to sort of get permanent residency. And so for me, not in my wildest dreams when I joined ACC did I think that I was ever going to reach those heights of being a global board chair. It's just unfortunate that a lot of people have put their trust and faith in me. And I hope that during my tenure as board chair and in various other leadership positions, I've been able to repay that faith and represent the organization in the best way possible. You spoke a bit about diversity and inclusion there, Mike. It seems like that's something that is quite important to you in your role as chair. So getting more diversity onto the board to reflect the global presence of ACC, can you tell me a bit more about how you've gone about that and why it's important? Sure, absolutely. So one of the things that we started to do was to actually create a bit of a matrix where we can actually see who do we have on our board, what are our skill sets, what are the backgrounds that we have, what cross-sections of society do we actually represent on that board? And is that really reflective of the membership that we have? And so over time, having all of those factors in mind, we went about ensuring that from those directors who are nominated to serve on the board, that we really do pick out people with the best skills to serve on the board, but also represent all of those diverse backgrounds. And of course, being inclusive is part of that as well. It is a quite an important thing for me because I come from a, a different background. And I think the richness that you get from the diversity in views and backgrounds and capability really can only be good for the association because we are so global. And some of the things we've done to accommodate people is, for example, our executive committee this past year while I've been board chair. I'm based in Australia. We've had people based in Africa, Europe, the US, and almost at the first time zone in the Pacific. So we had to make sure that everybody shared the burden of getting up at some ungodly hour at least once or twice during that time, but to make sure that everybody was able to participate and do so in fairness. So that's one of the things that we've purposefully done is to make sure that we share the workload and the inconvenience around as much as we can. Although I have to say, being in Australia, you know, we're, we're sort of probably the oddest time zone when you look at Europe and the US. I was always happy to be up at two, three, four in the morning because it's one of me and there's a number of them. And I think, you know, that while, whilst we were trying to be fair, I think it was a bit unfair because I, I think I got the better of the times most often than not. But, but look, that, that was one easy way to ensure that people weren't put off by the fact that, oh, I'm always going to have to be up at three in the morning. And that's been quite a noticeable shift. When I first joined ACC, a lot of the calls were, the, the global board, uh, a lot of the calls were at two or three in the morning. But again, I was really happy to do it because for me, it was such a privilege to be on the global board and to be able to participate. I'd love to do it regardless of what time of day it was. So look, that's one example of the many examples I can give of how we went about ensuring that we make sure that we've got geographic representation, but also demographic and belief representation on that board. Yeah, I like that. That's a really vivid example of how shifting time of day actually allows a bit more diversity. Although I was going to make the joke as you were talking there, Mike, we've already established that you're a bit of a glutton for punishment working and studying at the same time. And so it doesn't surprise me that a 3am call is well within the realms of acceptable for you. Shows your passion and dedication. So I wanted to ask now about the last couple of years. We've obviously been through kind of still in a global pandemic, which has been quite disruptive to communication and working and all things around life. So that has been in full swing during your role as the board chair. What have been some of the challenges that this has brought in your current role? If I can give that a bit more context, I was the treasurer of ACC when the pandemic first broke, you know, in 2020 and then the vice chair last year. So past board chairs also did deal with their fair share of COVID disruption. Look, certainly in the early days, we weren't sure how this was going to impact ACC globally. What we knew for certain was that our in-person meetings and events were certainly going to be affected given the, the lockdowns and I guess putting lockdowns aside, the hesitance of a lot of our members to actually be in crowded public places. 
So that certainly was a challenge for us because ACC had to pivot pretty quickly from a model where predominantly a lot of our engagements were in person to more of a digital platform and also then hybrid as the pandemic started to not not ease off, but I think settle into a rhythm where some countries worked out how they were going to operate. You know, I mean, in the US, I think there wasn't a federal government mandate. So lockdowns were particularized to, to states that chose to or cities that chose to go down the path. Yeah, it was a fragmented approach. Absolutely. So, you know, that was challenging for an organization like ours, which, you know, has chapters globally. How do we make sure we deliver services to members and still continue to enable those connections virtually? And look, I think we did a pretty good job to pivot pretty quickly because let's face it, the in-house events were predominantly the the events that ACC would run. And obviously that included sponsors who would show up to those events. And that had the potential to have a significant impact on the bottom line. But I think astounding work that was done by the ACC staff in terms of pivoting and making sure we had a strategy to pivot to a more digital environment worked pretty well. And I say that about the Australian chapter as well, because I was here and I was leading that. And so, look, I think we made that transition. It wasn't easy, but I think certainly by about November of 2020, we were able to get it to a point where we were reasonably comfortable with where we were. And of course, that did turn our mind to the future outlook and how did ACC want to operate given this environment of uncertainty. For the ACC members, you'll see that, you know, more recently as board chair and with the board, we worked on our next strategy piece. It's a shorter term strategy simply because of the unknowns that we were facing at the time when we were charting the course. But certainly the investment in technology and ensuring greater availability of resources online and a greater opportunity to connect digitally and utilize those digital platforms is something that we're certainly going to invest in above where we've invested so far during the pandemic. But I'm happy to say that all things going well in a couple of days, I'll be flying to Las Vegas for the ACC's global annual meeting. And I'm really looking forward to that because it'll be the first time since 2019 that we've all managed to get together. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing some old friends face to face again. Yeah, it's nice to get back into the swing of travel. I want to talk now about the role of the general counsel in the workforce and how it's kind of been evolving over the last couple of years. Probably now more than ever, it's important for general counsels to have a seat at the table with senior leadership. And I think this is a really interesting topic that I want to dive into and unpack. So let's break this up into a few elements. First of all, I wanted to ask you, Mike, in what ways have you seen the role of the general counsel evolve? Sure. So if we look at a global trend, the GC did have a seat at the table, but somehow or other in the 1980s, CFOs managed to trump the GCs for one reason or other, where it turned out that the GCs no longer reported to the CEO, but reporting to the CFO. And that certainly was a fairly common theme up until more recently. And certainly something that as a profession, as lawyers and particularly lawyers in-house, we look at the value that we bring to the table and we're no different to a CFO. I mean, a CFO brings financial expertise, but somehow they're also seen as bringing all these other skill sets, which most GCs or in-house lawyers already have. So it's not something that's just unique to the CFO. And I think that's where I have started to see the shift and particularly in part to ACC's advocacy through the Seat at the Table initiative over the last seven to 10 years, where we've really started to elevate the profile of the GC and the importance of the GC to the organization. I mean, you're seeing this play out even today with various issues that are going on. I mean, more recently, we had the data breach with one of the largest companies in the country here, and no doubt GC was heavily involved in the crisis management and how to navigate those challenges. So in terms of the role of GCs, I'm seeing the shift from GCs reporting to the CFO to now a lot of the roles where the GCs are now reporting directly into the CEO and are sitting part of the C-suite or the senior leadership team, which I think is about right because for most general counsel that I've been fortunate enough to meet through my connections at ACC and other networks, really what you have is a business leader first and a lawyer second. So we're really there at the table as a business leader, managing a business unit to meet the objectives of the company, the strategic goals, 
And we're effectively managing that process and legal happens to be one of those. And more and more, I'm actually seeing more general counsel actually take on some of the traditional roles that the CFO may have looked after, things like compliance. More recently, ESG, which is a hot topic at the moment. And I was fortunate enough to publish a couple of, couple of articles about this. Mm. What's ESG? Environmental, social, and governance. The role of the GC, I mean, we're already working in the governance space. For the most part, we're already working in the compliance aspects of the environmental things, as well as social, so modern slavery is one of the areas where, obviously, in Australia, we've got the modern slavery reporting system now. And so, yes, absolutely, uh, the role of the GC, I think, has been elevated, in part thanks to the efforts of ACC and its advocacy on the A Seat at the Table initiative. But we're still a long way from where we need to be, because the next piece for me is that GCs are compensated in line with other C-suite executives. And we know that that's gradually improving. But yeah, we are professionals in our own right that bring the same set of business judgment and standards to the table as other C-suite professionals, or we have a focus on legal. So my question is, why are we looked at as a lower ranking professional in a, in a company than a CFO or a CIO or CTO? Yeah, it certainly feels like that's starting to change in many organizations if it hasn't already. I actually just wanted to quickly touch on the A Seat at the Table initiative. Can you just unpack that in one or two sentences for me? Sure, absolutely. So it was a drive by ACC to ensure that GCs were obviously having a seat at the table, whether it's at the C-suite table or at the boardroom table. And as the initiative started quite some time ago, and it's been very successful. So I know that particularly in the US market, you know, the a number of the GCs in the Fortune 500 certainly are within the C-suite team and certainly have a seat at the boardroom table in terms of representation. But really, it was the fundamental aim of the initiative was to ensuring the elevation of the, the GC's profile as a business leader in various companies and why we should have a seat at that table and the value that we bring. So what can businesses do better then to ensure that GCs get involved in these leadership conversations? I think first and foremost, having the GC in your C-suite and having them as part of your group of management who sit at the board table, in addition to the company secretary, if your GC isn't wearing the dual hats. And really then that sends a signal that, well, as a company, we place importance on the value of legal in the sense that from a governance perspective, but also from a business judgment perspective as well and reputation. And so having the GCs included in that, I was fortunate enough at Hein, I wasn't part of the C-suite Hein Timber, but I was fortunate enough to be invited to a lot of the strategy sessions with the senior leadership group and certainly presenting to them quite regularly at their weekly meetings about various topics. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. And then what that enabled me to do was to then look at where the company's headed, really ask questions about, well, does this actually make sense? So using my commercial skills as opposed to my legal skills to question things, if we wanted to go to a particular place, did we need to change our company culture, for example? So I worked very closely with our GM of HR on how do we instill cultural change? And that's not just through contracts and so on. That's also through how do you manage your teams? You send that message through your own organization and how you manage your staff. But again, having access to and being invited to participate in those discussions about the business and the future of the business, I think it's critical because then GCs can look back and say, okay, these are the things my team needs to do to enable the business to achieve the goals that it needs to. So I think fundamentally, that's a good start for a business to do that. Yeah, I liked when you said before, Mike, that it's really about having a commercial mindset in addition to a legal one. I think that's really a great starting point. I wanted to ask if you've got an example that you can share with us or maybe a story just to help demonstrate this for those who are listening about a situation where you know a GC has been given a seat on the leadership table and how that has made a positive impact. Sure. So if I look at the current company that I work with, FutureFeed, so when I first applied for this role, they were looking for a legal counsel. In my discussions with them, I said, look, it's really important for your first legal counsel to be part of your management team, because I don't think that originally that was part of the plan. But I'm fortunate enough that they were very open-minded about that. And I think what that has enabled them to do is as a company that's scaling up and it is a startup that's growing, 
is to look at a lot of the issues with that added lens of someone who's got a commercial background in addition to legal and being part of the solutions. You know, we're an intellectual property heavy company in the sense that a lot of the work that we do is in that intellectual property space. And then we license that out. And so being part of the team, coming up with some strategies to make sure that we've got a viable business beyond just intellectual property that we develop and, and we sell or license, but actually planning out a bit of a roadmap and setting some goals around what is the identity of this company? Because once we are over the startup thresholds, where do we want to play? And this is, in fact, a discussion that we're having right now. And part of it is that, you know, we will talk to our board about this is where we think we need to be and this is where we think we can add value in terms of what we're doing and the environment that we're operating in. So that's one example where I'm currently in that. And I think the benefit of that is that the feedback that I get from the business that, oh, wow, we didn't just get someone who was just reading legal documents and telling us all about it. We're getting somebody who's reading the documents and then coming up with a solution to say, well, this is what I think the pathway looks like. And I think there's many examples of that. I mean, you only have to look at some of the leadership at the you know, ACC Australia chapter, for example, Justin Koss, who's at Numi Foods. I mean, certainly he's a great example of, you know, I think a company that needed some leadership and Justin is there now, and I think they're heading in a very good direction. And Justin's been pretty integral to that since he's joined. I won't talk about specifics, obviously, but you know, but I know he's doing a great job, and, and that company's headed in a, in a really positive direction. So a couple of examples there for you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Mike, we're going to do a bit of a lightning round now. So I've got some quick-fire questions, and I want you to just let out the first thing that comes to your mind. So if you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Set some goals. What's the one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house role? Articulating a vision. Mm. Where do you go to upskill? Mentors. Mm. We've covered that nicely this episode. What's one item on your bucket list? Fly to the moon. Fly to the moon. Wow. I think it'd be really cool. Your next job has to be at Tesla or, or something like that, I think, and somehow get a seat on the next rocket going up. Maybe. What's your favorite hobby? Cycling. What are you reading at the moment? Relentless. What's that? It's a book by a coach who coached and mentored a lot of the NBA professional basketball players. I highly recommend it. And if you've read it, you'll know what I mean when I say you need to be a cleaner. Mm. I really like how the sporting metaphors have really permeated this discussion. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Go to the gym. Nice. Who's someone that you really admire? It's got to be my wife. Look, there's a lot of people I admire, but really... I think without Emma being there, I really wouldn't have had the opportunity to do some of the things I'm doing now. You know, she looks after the kids while I'm overseas traveling and just holds up the home front because by nature of the roles that I've had, they've been busy roles, long hours, a lot of travel. So regardless of who else I admire, I mean, really, if I have to think about it and I have to choose one person, it's really her. Yeah, supportive families and partners are integral to a successful career and a successful life. So I think that's a good answer. Mike Madden, thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learned by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. 
If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time. Thank you.